Welcome to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. My name's Chris, and this is episode 18. Hello, and welcome back to The Kick in the Cast. Today, I have chapter 17 of Outcast on deck for you. As I said last week, there will be some content warnings coming up occasionally for the remainder of the book, as Dallin's world is getting a bit more intense. For this episode, the content warnings are for suggested sexual contact and suggested child abuse. Again, I'm doing my best not to be explicit on these topics, but I would be remiss if I didn't at the very least let you all know. With that said, here's Chapter 17 of Outcast. Outcast, a novel, written and read by Chris Fitzton. Chapter 17 When Crossla warned me during that first retreat that there was a beast growing inside of me, admittedly I thought it was hyperbole. I thought he meant he would eventually release my potential through his training. Sure, his words sounded urgent, but as time wore on, I treated that warning more as passionate encouragement than anything else. This wasn't to say I didn't feel something inside, but I brushed it off as confidence. My newfound focus on Teki and my desire to protect her became my reason to improve myself. For her, I would suffer any setbacks if it meant that someday I could overcome them. Teki became my world and in that blind devotion, I nearly lost it all. Time passed blissfully since the night we admitted our love for each other. Before I knew it, a month had passed. Summer was in full swing in the Kerala Valley. The days were hot and the nights comfortably warm. A fire at night was no longer necessary. Instead, we relied on each other to stave off any chill. Our lives settled into a wonderfully normal routine that provided a measure of stability and security for the both of us. By this time, Taki had done as I had and gotten a new identity from the Foundation. Now, when we were out, she was Teresa Maris, an expatriate from the island of Thanasia. So long as we were careful to keep relatively low profiles, the two of us were able to blend into the non-clan world as though we'd always belonged. The stability at home did wonders for my job at the docks. I already considered myself a good worker, but as the month progressed, people started to notice as well. After the McCavy put back out to sea, the crew of which I was a part were tending to another freighter, the Balana. I wondered if the crews of these two ships knew each other, because I learned that the Balana's captain specifically requested our crew. I may have allowed myself a little smugness over that news. I was glad that keeping upbeat was so easy at work. I never forgot the ocelot and what happened to him. Despite the incident, considered an accident, I knew the truth. I had no way of proving it, and I also had a feeling that no one would believe or support me if I made my suspicions known. So instead, I kept my head down, my mind on my work, and my attitude level. I was just one of the team. I was no one special. Yes, 
I was no one special at work, but in the training hall of Krasa Talak, I was more than someone special. I was unique. No others joined he and I for training. I got the impression that those approached with the offer were few, and those who accepted were even fewer. As it was, I was Cross's only student. Forms and movements were tightening up nicely, but my win-loss ratio against the holographic opponents was still dismal. I was improving, though. The opponents I did manage to beat, I did so rather decidedly. Since they weren't real, I felt no real remorse if I broke a simulated limb or punched a little too hard. When I lost, I made sure they worked for it. I held nothing back and reveled with each successful strike. I found myself enjoying the thrill of combat. I was no expert yet, but victory slowly became secondary when compared to the action. I wasn't fighting to win. I was fighting to fight. I should have known then that something was changing. Maybe I knew, but I didn't care. The high I got from something so simple, so primal, left me feeling that I was invincible. They could break my body all they wanted, but no one would ever break my will. I would always get up no matter what. The thrill of the contest was all that mattered to me. If I was changing, Krasa made no comment about it. He continued his tutelage as normal, pointing out where I needed to improve and then having me try again. I knew that mechanically, my moves were still a little stiff and ponderous, so I did my best to take his criticism in stride. I knew that once I satisfied his expectations, I could get back into the fight. That was all I wanted from this, to grow strong to protect the one I loved. I felt like I was improving, which made me want to push harder. I wanted to see the next step in my training. I wanted to see how strong I could become. How little I knew that Cross's warning about the beast was all too real, and I was unwittingly following the path that would lead to disaster. Thankfully, I was able to leave most of my feelings for battle in the training hall. It was a guilty pleasure, like someone normally on a diet binging on chocolate. I savored the sensation while in the throes of it, but away from Krasa, I simply carried on with my life as it was. The routine into which my life had fallen had left me feeling happy. Smiles came to my face so easily that I was amazed no one commented on it. Not once during that entire month had I felt like an exile. Instead, I felt the way I thought everyone else did. There was nothing special or tragic about me or Tiki. We were just two people in love, working our way through life with smiles on our muzzles and eyes bright with the promise of tomorrow. Maybe I was pushing it, but at work I was beginning to develop a sense of righteous indignation towards those I knew or suspected to be exiles. I no longer considered myself one of them, mostly because I was doing something with my life. Sure, any exiles I met at the docks had chosen to work rather than rely solely on charity, but they only did the minimum to get by. I saw no passion in their eyes. They seemed oblivious to the world around them existing instead of living. I considered myself lucky that my exile so far had not led me to that point. I also ended up regretting my earlier desire to know about other exile stories. 
Tiki and I were spending more time at the warehouse now that she was well, and as a result I was often recognized at the docks by others who'd taken the same path. Alas, it wasn't easy to remain on friendly terms with them. Time and again they stopped or confronted me in secret. In the beginning, I did my best to remain civil towards them. Some of them seemed friendly enough, and they were more than happy to share with me their stories. I felt for some of them, but most of the stories I heard made me realize that, for the most part, many exiles indeed deserved their fates. In fact, in some cases they deserved more than an exile. In the non-clan world, some of these stories I heard would have landed them in prison, or worse. The realization that my exile was unique when compared to others helped me justify my growing apathy toward them. If I had met some of them while still in the clans, I would have quickly found an excuse to not be around them. I had no love for the clans at that point, but many of these exiles seemed content to live out their lives doing nothing but cursing them. Their only source of amusement was ranting and raving about their former lives, and how they were better off now. Better off? Running a gauntlet across an industrial wasteland filled with gangs to get a bowl of food every day was better off? How bad was it for them in the clans? I would smile and nod at their antics, but deep down, I knew that this was not where I wanted to end up. I had to stay committed to my training and to take he, lest I end up like these poor souls. My loving roommate was always there if I ever felt myself beginning to slip. It could be a bad day at work, or a sound drubbing during training, but seeing her and feeling those arms wrap around me at the end of the day made it all worth it. Free of her sickness, Tiki began to show me a side of her I had never expected. I never thought in a million years that such a free spirit could have found its way into my heart the way she had. Her embrace was warm and loving, her kisses filled with passion, and her voice sounded as though she came from paradise itself. No matter my mood, all she had to ask was, How was your day? And I'd instantly feel better. We spent nearly every night that first month in the throes of passion. She was insatiable and rather adventurous. Some evenings we would melt into the deep woods surrounding the dwelling and find a secluded spot. On those nights we would make love tenderly, letting our senses become overwhelmed by the sights and smells of the outdoors as well as the all-encompassing desire for each other. Some nights we mated with reckless abandon, rutting like two animals driven solely by instinct. Other nights were long, drawn-out affairs where we would play, tease, and tantalize each other into a frenzy of pent-up lust. Regardless of how hard or how long, afterwards was almost always the same. We would hold each other close, share tender kisses and caresses, and whisper quiet overtures of our love to each other. Sleep would soon overtake us then, and we would often drift off into blissful unconsciousness, letting our bodies rest and recuperate for the next day. Alas, a good night's sleep was a rare thing during that first month. More than once I would wake to hear her crying in her sleep or whimpering like a wounded kitten left for dead. On those nights I would draw her close to me, and after a few deep breaths, she would relax and snuggle up against me. I often wondered what she was dreaming about on those nights, but when I asked her, I would simply get the common excuse of, I honestly can't remember. Something in her dismissal told me she was hiding something, 
but I figured it would be better for her to come to me with it rather than push her into an explanation. The last thing I needed was tension and distrust in the one place I felt safest. Rather than dwell on it, I instead focused on our life together. On days I wasn't training, she would meet me after my shift and we'd spend a few hours in the city, either merely wandering or shopping for the necessities. My first deposit from work was rather substantial, and having no real bills to pay was more than enough to give us a good head start on making the dwelling a real home. To accomplish that, we needed three things. Food storage, a way to cook said food, and certain creature comforts. For the first two needs, I was thankful that cottage life on Bengalis was a popular thing. While some people enjoyed roughing it in the great outdoors, Others preferred all the comforts of home, but without the noise and urban clutter of the city. However, many of these remote places had no connection to the world's energy grid. This meant no access to standard appliances, entertainment, or other such things city folk take for granted. The invention of the microfusion cell, however, solved this dilemma. Once activated, a cell supplied consistent power to an appliance for up to 10 years before needing replacement. Many folks tended to upgrade their appliances long before the cell was depleted, so some shops made a living refurbishing these older appliances, fitting them with new or nearly new cells, and selling them at a substantial discount. Substantial enough that Taki and I could easily afford both a full-sized refrigerator and a cooking stove with my first deposit. Grandfather supplied me with a delivery address for them, and once they arrived, he had them transported to the dwelling. I marveled at how easily he was able to arrange things like this. His connection to the Foundation must have been significant. I reminded myself to ask him about it one day. Even after two large purchases like that, there was enough money left over to buy some clothing and enough food to last until my next payday. Maybe it was the fact that I hadn't done it in so long, but I enjoyed wandering through the different clothing stores, trying on different things and waiting while Taki tried on outfit after outfit after outfit. In the end, we'd done rather well for ourselves, both now having plenty of casual wear, as well as some more formal clothing in case we wanted to have a night on the town. The monotony of this normal kind of life left me feeling comfortable. It also helped quell those feelings I would have in the training hall. The feelings of savagery I had while in the throes of combat calmed when in the presence of Teki and this life we were creating for ourselves. Everything seemed perfect. In one naive moment, however, I remember just how imperfect my life was. My next retreat was on the horizon. Before I went, though, I wanted to do something special for Teki. All the time I was away working or training, she was being a homebody. She was an excellent cook, and even though I offered to help around the place, she often insisted that she could take care of any cleaning or other domestic chores. After all, she said, I need something to do while you're away. I still felt guilty about being away for so many hours out of the day and not doing as much as she was around the house. I decided that I would treat her to a night on the town. A fine dinner, perhaps some dancing, or some other fun thing to get us out of the place. During any breaks at work, I looked over dining establishments with a borrowed hypernet tablet. 
Prior to my exile, I'd been to a few places, but the food there had not been particularly good. Those places were more based on image and status rather than quality of food. I didn't want that. I wanted a place where you got your money's worth and was, well, date-worthy. I wanted to show her that I had more taste than taking her to some diner or fast food place. I found a place, and I recognized the name, Sarens. One of my non-clan friends, Risha Goddard, once told me about it. It was a respectable place that catered to all facets of so-called decent society. It wasn't overly fancy, and the reviews I read indicated tasty food for what you paid. This would be perfect. Once my shift ended, I used my ID card to make a reservation for Taki and I. My transport couldn't arrive quickly enough, and I felt I was vibrating with anticipation for the entire trip home. I was so anxious to spring this on her that when the shuttle finally stopped and I got off, I tore off towards the tree line at a full sprint. Despite my excitement, I was careful not to burst through the door to our place. The last thing I wanted was to give her a start, or worse yet, have her throw a frying pan at me. I told her about the planned date for tonight, and she was absolutely overjoyed. She immediately kicked me out of the dwelling so she could change. That surprised me. After all we'd been through, now she was being modest? The moment I laid eyes on her when I opened the door, I suddenly realized why. She was wearing a blue dress, similar to the black one she'd worn on my coming of age, but it came below the knee in terms of length. Over top of that, she wore a small black top coat, and a pair of sensible-heeled shoes adorned her feet. She was a combination of elegant, sophisticated, and dead sexy all at once. We're going to be late if you keep gawking, she chastised, which snapped me out of whatever trance I was in. I hadn't even realized I'd been staring so intently at her until she said that. Quickly, I rummaged through my clothes and found something a little more formal to wear. It didn't take long for me to change, and when I finished, I looked over at Teki. She smiled and then licked her chops slowly before we headed for the door. The ride to the downtown core was thankfully peaceful. Specifying one or two occupants when summoning a transport was a reflex now. Granted, I was feeling more confident about defending myself than before, but only a fool goes looking for trouble. It didn't take long before the transport let us off a block away from the restaurant. When we arrived, there was an elderly leopard attending the door. He offered a polite smile as he opened it and ushered us inside. Once in the foyer, the host greeted us with a smile. Do you have a reservation? he asked. Yes, sir, I said, unconsciously slipping into a more formal, clan-like tone. For Cain, party of two. He accessed the tablet he was holding for a few moments before looking back at us. Right this way, he said. Inside, the restaurant looked much like any other I'd ever been to. Secluded booths lined the edges of the dining area, which held several tables. The tables ranged in size from being able to seat two all the way up to several people. Judging from the number of occupied tables, I felt fortunate that I'd made a reservation. The host thankfully led us over to one of the empty booths. He made sure we were both seated comfortably before handing each of us a menu. 
"'Your server should be here shortly,' he said with a smile. "'Enjoy your evening.' We both nodded as he turned on his heel and made for his post back at the foyer. I took a moment to look over the menu and was rather surprised to see it wasn't Nanoflex. In most restaurants these days, the menus network directly to the kitchen's order display. All you had to do was select what you wanted, choose any options you might want to include or exclude depending on your taste, and within a few minutes, a server would arrive with your meal. Here, though, the menus were actual printed sheets of paper, bound in a rather expensive-looking leather covering. I was impressed. As the host had promised, a server arrived at our booth a few minutes later. We each ordered a glass of red wine to start things off, and while the server was busy getting them, we perused our menus. The prices were steep, but we could afford it for one night. Once we were both satisfied with our choices, we put the menus aside and shared a quick toast before taking a sip of the wine. It was a bit drier than I preferred, but it was still drinkable. Of course, the company I was with helped immensely with that. The look on her face told me she wasn't too impressed with the wine either. We both only hoped the meal would more than make up for it. We sipped at the wine and idly chatted, and I took some time to look at the other tables around us. Most of the people had come here in pairs, mostly older couples. I guessed most of them were intent on enjoying a nice night out. Above the normal noise of quiet conversation, I could hear a bit of polite laughter, but nothing overly attention-drawing. I shouldn't have been surprised. Establishments like Saren's were not the place for boisterous laughter and loud voices. It was polite dining, where one could focus on their meal and who they were with. Have you been here before? Taki asked quietly after the server had finished taking our orders. I shook my head. One of my non-clan friends told me about this place once, I said. I didn't think I had, but when Taki reached her hand across the table and squeezed mine, I realized my voice had been heavy with longing. I guess I'll never be able to tell her I made it here. If she talks to your grandfather, though, won't he tell her about you? She asked. I shrugged. Maybe. Before all this happened, Mother said she and one of my other friends were on vacation in Thanasia. I had to bite back another wave of sorrow. The last time I saw them was before the attack. They were already gone when I woke up. I wonder how they'll react when they come looking for me. That's assuming you haven't been disavowed from your clan. I cocked my head at what she said. Among the tribes, one who was banished is also disavowed, she explained. If someone were to ask my family about me, they'd basically say that I never existed, or they had no daughter by that name. I think it's the same with the clans, I said, recalling Grandfather's story about Raal, and that I'd never known about him. Must be awkward when someone regains their status, though. Being the eldest son before my exile, I was in line to be elder someday. With me gone, my brother Richard was next in line behind father now. Hopefully his snout wouldn't be too out of joint when I regained my honor, and he was once more behind me in the order of ascension. Maybe he can contact them ahead of time, Taki suggested. Then they'd know before anyone else can. Excuse me. I was certain that even if I hadn't recognized the voice, it would have had the same spine-chilling effect on me. 
Of course, given the speaker's profession, having the ability to intimidate someone with just a few casual words was a rather significant asset. I turned towards the voice and beheld one of the most imposing white tigers I'd ever seen. Granted, he wasn't all that built physically, but his stance and the cool expression on his muzzle made him seem somehow larger than he was. I swallowed slowly, silently praying enough time had gone by. Please forgive interruption, he said. His voice was thick with a Samarophon accent. I am Yusuf Baladin. I am hoping you can be helping me. Uh, sure, I said, trying to remain calm. How can I... I looked beside Yusuf and felt my heart sink. Standing there was another white tiger. He was younger than Yusuf. Actually, he was my age. He stared at me with eyes filled with a look of excited recognition. Reluctantly, I tore my gaze away from the younger tiger and looked back at Yusuf. How can I help you? I asked. Papa, I am telling you it is him, the younger tiger blurted out. Elder Calamar was being wrong. He did not die. Silence, Tomas, Yusuf hissed. I saw the younger tiger cower from his father's voice. If elders say Dalin is dead, then he is dead. Why would he lie? That question pretty much confirmed what I suspected about disavowal among the clans. Despite what Grandfather knew, I understand why he said what he did in front of Yusuf. Yusuf Baladin was Kerala City's most respected prosecuting advocate. His passion for justice was near fanatical, and he would often pursue the highest possible punishment for even the smallest of crimes. In his defense, he wanted to send a clear message to anyone thinking of breaking the law, and for that even the clans respected him. Sadly, this passion for the law also extended to how he treated exiles. Like so many others, Yusuf viewed clan outcasts like me as a blemish on decent society. More than once, he'd officially supported campaigns that called for the instant public execution of exiles upon discovery. Thankfully, for people like Taki and I, not everyone shared such extreme views. Dead? I asked. Did someone die? Yusuf nodded. Yes. Someone attacked a friend of my son's a year ago. Up until recently, he was being in hospital in coma. I see, I said evenly. According to family's elder, he then said, he never woke up from coma. I heard a quiet whimper from the younger tiger, and it took all I had to stay seated. Gods, that poor guy's heart was breaking and I couldn't do anything about it except continue this illusion at his expense. I'm sorry, I finally said, but I'm not the person you're thinking of. My name's Darian. Darian Kane. I'm not sure who this Calamar person is. Tomas stared at me, his eyes filled with tears. I took a deep, shuddering breath to keep myself steady. I'm sorry, I said quietly. Of course. Yusuf said. Again, I apologize for interruption. Please to be enjoying the rest of your evening. Come along, Tomas. He turned away, offering an uncharacteristically gentle hand on his son's shoulder. Together, the two of them walked back towards their table, leaving me alone with Teki. It felt like hours had passed before I finally calmed down. 
It wasn't so much the panic at potential discovery, but more what I had to put Tomas through. I took another sip of my wine, wishing for an entire bottle to upend at that moment. Again, Taki's hand reached out for mine, and she squeezed it as hard as she could. Without her asking for it, I started talking about Tomas. Because of his high status in the non-clan world, Yusef and his family often attended different clan functions, all by invite. Granted, most of those invitations had ulterior motives, usually political in nature, but the Baladins didn't seem to mind. If anything, they had developed a taste for clan finery. Tomas was shy when I first met him, and given what I knew of his father, it was understandable. Yusef ruled his house with an iron fist. He often met the smallest infraction with a slap or verbal blasting. Tomas once told me his father justified it all, claiming he never wanted to see neither Tomas nor his younger brother, Nikolai, in the defendant's chair in a courtroom. Taki was less than impressed with Yusef. In my tribe, she said, a father can be banished or stoned to death for laying a hand on a child. Her tone was heavy with venom. Our chief once cut the ear off a hunter for slapping his own daughter hard enough to make her muzzle bleed. My stomach churned slightly at the visual. Some of the exile stories I'd heard over the past month included child abuse. Some were young fathers, exiled by their elders for harming their own children. Others simply neglected theirs. In that respect, I was almost grateful that the clans had the right to exile members like that. Forcibly remove an abuser, and there was a chance that the child would grow up knowing only love and peace. Stories like this made me want to distance myself even more from most of these exiles. Regardless of status, bad people were bad. Our meals finally arrived, and in sharp contrast to the dry, lifeless-tasting wine, the entrees were divine. The meat was perfectly cooked, and the accompanying vegetables and other garnishes were a perfect complement. Even Teki was impressed, and I thought I heard her begin to purr softly as she dug into her dinner. We were about halfway through our meals when I felt the pressing call of nature. I excused myself and, after talking with one of the roaming servers, headed for the restrooms. I was dreading having to wait while others before me were answering the same call I was, but when I arrived, I was pleasantly surprised to find it empty. Well, almost empty. As the door closed, I thought I could hear someone in one of the stalls. I paid it no mind as I strode up to one of the empty urinals and began to relieve myself. Moments later, I heard that stall's toilet flush and the door open. It wasn't until the person went to wash his hands that I noticed who it was. It was Tomas. Oh, he said, turning my way. Hi, I said, pausing for a moment to finish. I headed for the sinks and took the one next to his. Feeling better? No, he said. I... I did not mean to embarrass you in front of girlfriend. You are just looking and sounding so much like... Like Dallin? You could have heard a pin drop in the room. He turned towards me, eyes wide first in shock, and then in what looked like building anger. Easy, Tommy, I said, taking a step back. It's me. His eyes narrowed. It's Dallin. How do I know this is not some lie, he countered. 
His voice had a venomous edge. Tell me something. Something only Dullin would know. All right, I said after a moment. To get back at Nick for breaking that model spacecraft of yours, you got Max and I to help you steal his Herog the Hero action figure. Then we borrowed some clothes from one of Risha's dolls and dressed it up like a drag queen before putting it somewhere where your father would see it. Oh, the yelling that ensued after that. We could have been half a world away and we would have heard that roar. I wasn't sure what made more of an impact. The story or my abbreviation of his little brother's name. In either case, Tommy's lower lip began to tremble. Dallin? he asked. But your grandfather... He had to, I interrupted, hanging my head. I've been exiled, Tommy. Exiled? he asked. But how? Why? It's a long story, I said. One I can't really tell you here. On reflex, I stole a quick glance around. It's a risk just telling you this here now. Then where? Tommy asked. When? I thought for a moment. Contact my grandfather, I said. Tell him you met Darian Kane. He'll know what you're talking about. Darian Kane, Tommy repeated. All right. I will be doing this. I could see his eyes begin to well up with tears, and I placed a hand on his shoulder. I am just relieved you are not dead. You're relieved, I said. Imagine how I feel. That brought a small smile to his face. Okay, I said. Now get out of here and no more worrying about me, all right? He nodded, wiping his eyes before heading out of the restroom. I waited a few minutes before doing the same hopefully giving the impression to any curious eyes that Tomas and I hadn't spoken to each other. I told Taki about Tomas as we finished our dinner, and that we could expect some company soon. She seemed a little apprehensive about it at first, but I assured her that Tommy was a good friend, and someone who'd keep our little secret. We finished our meals and settled the bill. It was still early, but after such a big meal, we were both tired and decided to just head home. We decided to walk a block or two before calling for a transport, as we both thought it rude to do so right in front of the restaurant's doors. It also gave us a chance to just walk hand in hand and enjoy the warm evening air. It was the perfect end to a perfect evening, right up until those four Pakla's surrounded us. I had no time to react as they forced Taki and I into a nearby alley. My mind was still trying to process what was happening. But the moment I heard the click of the opening switchblade and felt it press against my throat, I realized that we were in trouble. I also soon learned just what was inside me, straining to get out. And that's our story. My inspiration for the accent and speech patterns for Tomas and his father came from both a podcast that I started listening to many years ago and a podcast novel from the old patiobooks.com site, which is now known as Scribble. The book is Singularity by Bill DeSmet. I highly recommend giving it a listen. It's an interesting take on the aftermath of the Tunguska Blast of 1908. Bill's narration is top-notch 
and his ability to do a Russian accent is incredible. The podcast that also helped me is The Secret World Chronicle, a collaborative series written by Mercedes Lackey, Dennis Lee, Cody Martin, Larry Dixon, and Veronica Jaguer. Veronica's been the majority voice artist on this podcast, and her range of talent is truly astounding. Now, I realize we're running a bit long here, but I wanted to share a story about Mercedes. I actually met her at a convention years ago. At the time, I was only barely aware that she was also a fantasy author, so when I had the chance to speak with her, I admitted that I only really knew her through the Secret World Chronicles. She told me I was the first person all weekend to mention the Chronicles, and we actually ended up talking a bit of shop about the series. I did end up buying one trilogy of books from her, as well as a copy of World Divided, which is book two of the Secret World Chronicles. I'll have links to both the podcast and that novel in the show notes for this week. But for now, I think I'll end it here. As always, thank you for tuning in, and if you'd like to leave some feedback, you can email me at outcastnovel at gmail.com, or leave an audio feedback via the SpeakPipe app at kickit.yo5.ca. So until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and above all, have a good week. This is Chris, signing out. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to The Kick in the Cast, the audio blog of a wannabe podcast novelist. For more information, please visit the show's website at kickit.yo5.ca. And to leave any feedback, please feel free to drop an email at outcastnovel at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and hope to see you next time.